Good morning, family. Uh, before I dive into what I'm going to share with you, I want to say first in your bulletin, it says that there's a family meeting two weeks from today, so the 21st. Uh, we will tentatively be in the fellowship hall. Um, we won't do finger foods. You guys are going to bring some really good stuff to eat. Sweet. Yeah, so um, plan on that two weeks from today. We've got some stuff we need to share with you, so let's do that. So it's already been mentioned, most of you know, that today there are almost 40 different Christian churches all over Jefferson County that are uh, preaching about biblical marriage and family. Um, I, you know, I'll, I'll be honest with you, I've had numerous opportunities over my lifetime ministering in hundreds of different churches all over the country. To me, this is like the biggest thing um, of our ministry, to have these churches coming together and working together and preaching about the same thing. And we're doing this, obviously, because we believe that the, the Word of God is living, it's active, it's powerful. You know, the, uh, um, God, through the prophet Jeremiah, said, Is not my word like fire, declares the Lord, like a hammer that breaks the rock in pieces? We believe that the, the faithful proclamation of God's Word is going to act like a fire and burn up all that stuff that's, that's not of God. It's going to act like that, that hammer that's going to destroy the things that are contrary to, to what God wants to do. And so, beginning today, for the next two weeks, we're going to be doing this in um, 30, right now, 37 different churches all over the county, um, talking about marriage and family relationships. And it's not just for, for us, not just for those congregations, but we believe that as we do this, that there's going to some, something's going to happen in the atmosphere the spiritual atmosphere, because God is faithful to his word as we together proclaim the truth of his word. We're expecting God to push back the darkness, if you will. And before I dive into this topic, I want to say one other thing, and that is that in, in talking about marriage and family, I, we are not trying to make anybody who is not married feel uncomfortable at all. That is not the goal, all right? I realize that could happen, but that's not the goal. In fact, I think it might be good for me just to mention right here at the, the outset that the two most prominent figures in the New Testament, people in the New Testament, were not married. Jesus, obviously, and the Apostle Paul. Now, some people say that the Apostle Paul was married sometime before, but we, we don't know for sure. But we do know for sure that by the time he got to his writing and his traveling, he wasn't married. So clearly, being single is not necessarily a bad thing from a scriptural perspective. All right, I want to make sure that we understand that. At the same time, the Bible talks a lot about the importance of marriage. And it even likens our our, uh, the, our relationship with Christ to the marriage relationship. And, and so, even if we're not married in an earthly sense, we're still married to Christ. And so it's important for us to understand some of the things, regardless of whether we have a, a, an earthly spouse or not. All right? So I just want to make, lay that kind of foundation there at the beginning. Let's pray. Lord, as we today look at your word, we're inviting you as only you can, to speak into us. Holy Spirit, would you take away any preconceived ideas that we might have and let us see from your perspective the things that we need to, to understand, the things that we need to walk in, the things that we need to comprehend that will make a difference in our lives. And Lord, we're trusting you to do that. Work in us by your word. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. 
All right, I will tell you right up front here that a lot of what I'm going to share with you um, are the, probably half this message is foundational. It's very different from my normal preaching style, all right? And I'm, what I'm doing is I'm laying a foundation for the rest of the message as well as for the next two weeks so that we understand marriage from a biblical perspective. And some of you might remember some of this stuff from uh, probably three and a half years ago. I preached a message um, about this same topic, and so you'll, you'll, you'll get a little refresher on some of this, um, but there will be other things that, that are new. It would have been... Um, Election day last year, there was a face on post, uh, a post on Facebook by a man named Joseph Backholm. He said this, the future of our country and the quality of our lives is not determined primarily by who is in public office. Yay! Politicians are the fruit of the tree. They are not the tree. What a great statement. Our future will be determined by the strength of our families, and we all have control over that. What a great statement. And he's right. We do. So the fact is that Marriage and family is, is under attack today like never before. But the good news is that there's hope. And it's found in the Bible. Marriage, after all, was God's idea right from the very beginning. You know, right after he created Eve, Scripture says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother, hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. You're going to hear that scripture over and over. By the time I'm done with this sermon, you'll have that verse memorized. Um, because it's quoted in a number of times in the New Testament, too. So I'm going to you know, keep, keep coming back to that. But it's very obvious. One man, one woman. There is nothing ambiguous about this idea at all. There is no hint ever in scripture of any idea that the uh, same-sex romantic relationship is acceptable from God's, perspi- from God's perspective. It's just not there. Jesus actually quoted from the the passage in Genesis that we just read, and then he added a little bit more. Matthew 19, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother, hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let man not separate. One man, one woman, for a lifetime. And this might get touchy here, uh, I understand, but I want to emphasize the importance of the, the, the permanence aspect. And I'm not trying to pick on or call out anybody that's divorced. There's forgiveness in Christ, all right? I I totally understand that. But there is, if we're going to talk about biblical marriage, there is that permanence aspect that is very, very important from that scriptural perspective. Mark chapter 10, Pharisees came to Jesus and and they asked, is it lawful for for, for a man to divorce his wife? And they were asking the question because uh, Moses had said it was. He he gave them permission. Jesus explained that it was because of your hardness of heart that he wrote you this commandment. What he's saying, it was clearly not what God intended. Moses allowed you to do that because you were hard-hearted, because you were stubborn. Jesus went on in that context to say what we just read earlier in the Gospel of Matthew From the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let man not separate. Again, one man, one woman, for a lifetime. And, And, you know, it might be possible at this point for you to say, well, yeah, but our culture is so different today. Um, There is... Such pressure, especially today in our culture, in the, in the sexual arena, to, to actually you know, push back against those marriage vows. And, and I, you know, honestly, I would tend to agree to a point. 
But, but think about this. Not long ago, I was reading a book that describes in detail, perhaps from my perspective, too much detail at times, um, things like fornication and adultery and homosexuality and, and, and incest. And some of you are going, what are you doing reading stuff like that? It was the Old Testament. So, yes, there is this pressure that pushes back. I get it. But there's always been immense pressure. And on our own, if we're just on our own, we're sunk. We are. But the reality is that we're not on our own. Jesus said, apart from me, this is a verse that I quote probably more than any other, apart from me, you can do Nothing. It's only in his strength that we have the, 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 the necessary ability to do what he calls us to do. But we do have it because he's given it to us. Now, it's obvious from Scripture that marriage was God's idea, all right? Marriage isn't something that man just dreamed up on his own. It was God's plan, part of his, his plan from the very beginning. See, according to, uh, to our culture... Marriage is just a human construct, something that, that people came up on their own. But that's not right. See, if, if that was right, then you know what, what, I, what I've heard said in our, our, our culture is that marriage is fluid. That means it can take different shapes, different forms, whatever you want it to, right? And if it does exist, if marriage does exist just as a human idea, then Doing it differently, altering it, whatever, changing it, having a, 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 a same gender partner, having multiple partners, having a, a non-human partner, any of those things, if it's just a human idea, any of that stuff is on the table. It's perfectly fine. But, and as Daryl likes to say, that's a big but, but if marriage is a, not a human idea, but an institution created by God, changes everything. If it's something that God created, then we don't have the, the ability to be able to change it, to alter it, to do whatever that we want to with it. We can't. It's got to be done by God's rules. We can't just wake up in the morning and say, hey, I think I'll change all the rules. I think I'll, I'll alter the definition of marriage. No. No matter what any legislators or, or judicial system people or anybody might say, marriage, true biblical marriage, has to follow God's rules. It has to be patterned after God's design. The Bible's pretty clear. One man, one woman, for a lifetime. Whatever stipulations other than that might be mentioned in the Bible. And honestly, there's not a lot of specifics beyond those things. Whatever other things might be there, this is the core. This is the, the bedrock, the foundation. So marriage is God's institution. It was founded by God. It was his idea. But this is deeper than just just a few passages here and there in the Bible. I mean, think about it. Go all the way back to the beginning, Genesis chapter 1. Uh, Stephen has told us over and over that Genesis 1, 2, and 3 is the foundation for everything. So Genesis chapter 1, there is this consistent pattern that is set up there uh, for us to see clearly what's going on. God creates light and darkness. God creates heavens and earth. God creates waters and land. God creates birds of the air and creatures of the water. He creates animals that are designed to be wild and ones that are designed to be domesticated. He creates evening and morning. He creates greater light and lesser light. It's all of these binary pairs that are intrinsically linked together. 
And if you read through Genesis 1, you can see this ongoing pattern that's established there. It's these, the, the, these intentionally created duos, two things that are designed to go together, to work in tandem, and the last one that's listed is male and female. So the, the, he establishes, God establishes this pattern. There's this and there's this. There's this and there's this. There's this thing and there's this thing. All of these things that are designed to work in tandem, and then the last one is male and female. You know, no matter how much our culture tries to push back and tries to meld the idea that identities of male and female are really the same, sorry, they're not. They're each unique. They're distinct. And that that difference, that distinctness was created by God. It was intentionally made by him. Men and women are created to be complementary to one another. In other words, they're designed to complete each other. So that's the beginning. And then if you go all the way to the end of the Bible, the very last scene in the Bible is the new heavens and the new earth. And what's the, what, what's the symbolism that's used there? It's the marriage of the Lamb. It's Jesus and his bride. So when we talk about biblical marriage, this isn't just like a once or twice thing in the scriptures. It is woven into the fabric of scripture all the way through from beginning to end. Think about this. The Bible tells us that Eve was created as Adam's helper. Now, I know in our culture, the idea of helper can sound demeaning, but it, that's not the biblical connotation. Think about it. In the New Testament, the Holy Spirit is referred to as our helper. That's hardly a demeaning term then, right? Okay, so in, uh, in, in Genesis 2.20, we read, For Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. There was not found a helper fit for him. I heard somebody say that it's really important to understand the, the language there. There was nothing that was a proper fit. There's not found a helper fit for him. He needed something that he was not. He needed something that he didn't have. And yes, I understand there's a physical aspect to this, but it's, it's way deeper than that. That word is far deeper than just the, the physical. They each have, have different roles to play in that relationship. So immediately after this, God causes Adam to fall into a deep sleep, takes part of him, and creates Eve out of Adam. So think about this. God created two out of one. He created Eve out of Adam. So in the marriage relationship, the two become one. They're melded back together, if you will. So think about this. When a husband and wife come together, it's not just a union. It is a reunion. What was once taken apart in creation is now being brought back together. And they become one. They come together precisely because they are different. She is a proper fit for him as he is for her. They have what each other needs to be complete, to be whole. Now, all right, the truth is that because of the fall, we're all broken, all right? So even just coming together as a man and a woman, that doesn't really, is not going to make you whole. It's, you can only be whole with, through Christ. See, the fact is that because of our, our fallen nature, um, we are, I heard one person say, we are divorced from our intended groom, automatically right from the beginning. But the flip side of that is that the cross has wed us into a one flesh unity with Christ. We, we've been brought together. We have been, been made one with him. So, so just being married doesn't really make us whole in the truest sense of that word. Only That can only happen through Jesus, right? Okay. 
But it's obvious in Scripture that husbands and wives have different roles to play in that relationship, and fulfilling those roles, in, in one sense, makes us whole, makes us complete, brings us together. So think about this. When Paul in the New Testament says that marriage is an analogy for Christ and the church, it's because men and women are not the same. That's the only reason it works. See, if it's, if it's a man and a man, if it's a woman and a woman, if it's Christ and Christ or the church and the church, the analogy makes no sense at all. Are you following me? So no matter what angle you look at this whole thing from, it still comes back to one man, one woman for a lifetime. But let me add that it's also important for us to understand that marriage is deeper than just an official legal pact. The, the Ephesians 5.31 passage. Again, Paul quotes Genesis 2.24. Therefore a man shall... Are you guys getting this one yet? Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and the, hold fa fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. And then the very next verse, um, Paul says that that's a great mystery and it's talking about Christ and the church, right? So what, is that, what does that mean for me and you? Well, Theologian John Piper said it this way, the union of man and woman in marriage is a mystery because it conceals, as in a parable, the truth about Christ and the church. The divine reality hidden in the metaphor of marriage is that God ordained a permanent union between his son and the church. Human marriage is the earthly image of this divine plan. As God willed for Christ and the church to become one body, so he willed for the marriage to reflect this pattern, that the husband and wife become one flesh. So when we as Christians perform a marriage ceremony, it's not just a, a nice, pious custom so that two people can now live together legally. Oh, oh, it is that. But it's more than just that. It's a, a depiction of Christ in the church. It's Jesus and his bride. It's the, the, the man and the woman coming together the way that God designed in order to bring wholeness or completion in them right from the beginning. So there is a sacredness to marriage. So to change the definition of marriage to whatever our society thinks is good, whatever our society might think is convenient at the, at the moment, misses the whole idea of what marriage is like in the Bible from beginning to end. So then if we really understand that, then it's obvious if, God's, if it was God's plan, if it's God's idea, then God wants marriage to work even more than we do. And that's important for us to understand as we look at this whole issue over the next couple of weeks that needs to be in the back of our minds. God really wants this to work and work well. All right, now I want to get into a little bit more practical. That's kind of the foundational stuff, all right? I want to get into a little bit more practical um, as we go through here, but I'm going to kind of take the, the scenic route to get there. Um, if we really want to lay a foundation for marriage, then we need to look at marriage in light of the gospel. Because apart from that, all we've got is gritting our teeth and trying harder, and that never works well over the long term. It just doesn't. But in light of the gospel, everything changes. So think about this. I said earlier about the uh, Apostle Paul quoting Genesis 2, the letter to the Ephesians, a man shall leave his father and mother, hold fast his wife, the two shall become one flesh. Right after that, he says, this mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ in the church. So again, marriage is, is symbolic of that relationship that God wants to have with us, with his people, right? So... So if we want to understand marriage, then we need to go back to that relationship. What does God want that relationship to look like? Or maybe from a different perspective, how does he, as the bridegroom, so to speak, 
woo us or court us in that relationship. Because if we understand that, then it gives us a better understanding of God's perspective on marriage. Are you with me? I don't know about you, but I'm fascinated by the symbolism in the Bible. God uses events, people, to get us to see things in a different way than we would otherwise. Um, and so those symbolic events to me are just amazing. Perhaps, you know, the, the, the big one that we can all relate to, the, the Exodus rescue and how in so many ways it parallels our rescue in the New Testament of what Christ has done for us. Amazing symbolism there. Amazing symbolism in, in so much of the Bible. But I think one of the most profoundly symbolic books is the book of Hosea. And I'm not suggesting that it's, it's not true when I say it's symbolic. I'm just saying it's a true event that God uses in symbolic ways, if you will. Now, in case you haven't read the book of Hosea or haven't read it in a while, it's this unlikely, maybe even ridiculous story of a prophet called by God to marry a harlot, a prostitute, somebody who willingly sells her body for material gain. The very idea of that is absurd to me. How could God think it was a good idea to have one of his prophets, one of his chosen mouthpieces, enter into this absurd, horrific relationship? That whole idea is crazy beyond belief to me. But if you read the book of Hosea, there is this, this narrative that kind of weaves back and forth between Hosea and his prostitute wife and Israel and God and how Israel, his people, have chosen to play the harlot. It, it, it harkens back to what God clearly showed in Exodus about the relationship between the Lord and his bride. The symbolism that's, that's there in the book of Hosea is, is amazing to me. First, Hosea redeems this prostitute. He marries her. He takes her home. He provides for her needs. He takes care of her. And then she apparently ups and leaves. And, and rather than doing what any rational person would do, just let her go, bye, see ya. Hosea goes after her buys her back, takes her back home, and loves her. This is crazy. But along with that story, that back and forth parallel, there's also a recurring theme that keeps popping up in the book of Hosea. And it's, it's a really different theme, if I can say it that way. And maybe the best way that I could describe it is if Hosea was a movie and there was a soundtrack, the soundtrack behind most of the book of Hosea would be this, this hard-driving, loud, pulsing, heavy metal. It would be designed to grab your attention and hold your attention. There's a continuous, on the edge of your seat, wondering what kind of scandalous thing is going to happen next the ongoing sins, the deep sins of the people, just over and over, the Lord's adulterous wife, Israel, repeatedly seen in compromising situations that clearly show their guilt. And if it was just once, you know, you and I might be able to say, okay, have some sympathy, but it's over and over and over and over and over to the point that like, this is absurd. So there's this hard-driving, tension-building musical theme that could be playing throughout much of the 14 chapters of the book of Hosea, but every so often, 
we see actually with quite a bit of regularity, there's another theme. And this one's different. It's gentle. It's calming. It's soothing. has a kindness, a sense of, of wooing to it, if you will. And if there was music playing behind this whole thing, this music would be so different that you couldn't help but see the contrast. This isn't the pulse-pounding, deep reverberations that we've heard through most of it. This is a love song. And it's a love song that is so deep, with so much emotion. You and I have never heard a love song that was anywhere close to this one. This is not the love song of the young groom wooing his beautiful, innocent bride and saying, I love you. No, this is the love song of the groom who's been rejected over and over and over again, looking through tear-filled eyes at his wife in her stained wedding dress, who is opening her arms to other men and still saying, I love you as no one has ever loved anyone before. I love you. This love song is so deep, has so much emotion that it almost seems out of place, out of character with everything else that's going on and has so much compassion in it. You and I could barely fathom it. Let me just share a couple of sections out of so many where God speaks his love. And keep in mind that in each of these, Israel is apparently, as the Bible puts it, still whoring at that point. They're still running headlong in the other direction. But in spite of that, God speaks his love. Chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. Therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. And there I will give her her vineyards and make a valley, the valley of Achor, a door of hope. Let me put that in a little bit more modern vernacular. The message translation says it like this. Now, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to start all over again. I'm going to take her back out into the wilderness where we had our first date and I'll court her. This is after the whoring, all right? I'll give her the bouquets of roses. I'll, I'll turn her heartbreak valley into acres of hope. She'll respond like she did as a young girl those days when she was fresh out of Egypt. God's saying, I'm going to pick her up and carry her across the threshold. I'm going to take her on a date. I'm going to give her flowers. I'm going to prepare an amazing meal for her. I'm going to show her that I love her even though she is spurned again and again and again. That's crazy talk. Chapter 11, verses 3 and 4, Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up by their arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of kindness, with the bands of love, and I became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws, and I bent down to them and fed them. I get the impression that it's like Israel is facing the other direction, and God is behind them doing all of these amazing things for them, saying, I love you, and they don't even know it's him. They're ignoring him completely. Chapter 14, verses 4 and 5. I will love them freely, for my anger is turned from them. I will be like the dew to Israel. He shall blossom like the lily. He shall take root like the trees of Lebanon. God wants Israel, even in even the sinning and running away Israel, to, to prosper, to flourish, to feel loved in the midst of what's going on. That's what God does with you and me. He pursues us. When we're running full speed in the opposite direction, he calls out, I love you, even when we're covering our ears and trying to ignore him. The story that we read in, in Hosea 
is this crazy, completely upside down, backward from our normal experience. See, you and I, we tend to love people who are worthy. We have an affinity for loving people who are going to love us back. We gravitate toward loving people who will graciously and willingly accept the love that we extend. But God, he's different. He loves even those who turn from him. He loves the rebellious as well as the faithful. He pursues you day after day. He is so intent on a relationship with you that he runs headlong after you even when you don't want him to. And that's what Hosea shows us again and again. The fact is that you're that bride. You fall, even willingly fall, over and over. The times you turn your back, and yet he keeps on pursuing you. You know, we don't, we don't like to think of ourselves like that. We like to think that we're pretty good. We're not. Some years ago, a speaker at a conference talked about sitting in his living room with a, his wife one evening, They'd been married for decades and he went into the kitchen to get them each a bowl of ice cream and walking back into the living room with the bowls of ice cream, he's examining each of them carefully, trying to decide which one has more ice cream because he wants to keep that for himself. And it suddenly dawned on him that here's this woman that he had pledged his life to. Here's this woman that had taken care of him, had washed his clothes, had made his meals, had bore his children on and on. And he's begrudging her a little bit of ice cream. And it suddenly dawned on him again how selfish he was. You know, you and I, on our own, we tend toward selfishness. But in light of Jesus' death and resurrection, that changes. We don't have to be to live like children of darkness. We are children of light. He's taken our sins. He's nailed them to the cross. They're gone as far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions from us. And now we are capable of living as children of God in righteousness and holiness and graciousness and exhibiting the, the fruit of the Spirit. We're new creatures. The old is gone. The, the new has come. We're that bride, that bride that he pursues over and over again. Do you even begin to understand how much God loves you? how much he desires to have a close and even intimate relationship with you. See, that's not only the pattern for our earthly relationships and for marriage, it's also the motivation for it. That almighty creator is pursuing you and me. Even with our filth and our sin, he's drawing us to himself. He's loving us. We're accepted by the perfect and holy God. See, when I really understand that, it makes me want to pursue others and especially my spouse. Think about it. What, what would happen if you pursued your spouse, those of you that are married, you pursued your spouse the way that God pursues you? After all, his, his marriage to us is the pattern, right? Think about this. Way back to to. Eve, uh, when God created Eve, and Adam put, uh, put, God put Adam in the deep sleep, made his help meet. Matt Chandler, in his book, The Mingling of Souls, a book about marriage, he said this, 
wouldn't it be nice if it still worked the way it did in Genesis? Man, if you got up from a nap and there she was, no games, no confusion, no risk, just the one standing before you, glowing with God's delight. Women, can you wrap your minds around a relationship built on clarity and trust, all for your joy and God's glory? No broken hearts, no mind games, no toying with your emotions, just serving the Lord with a man who delights in God all the more because God gave him you. It'd be a great scenario, wouldn't it? But the fact is that you and I, if we're married, we're married to somebody who's sinful. Oh, and by the way, your spouse is also married to somebody who's sinful. I just want to make sure that you got, you got that part too, okay? Good. You, both of you have stuff on the inside. Selfishness, pride, independence, lust, greed, on and on. Stuff that shouldn't be there. A friend of mine said that all marriage problems are because both, one or both partners are eating from the wrong tree. I like that. I mean, th- think about, th- think about the, the Garden of Eden, one tree, God said, don't eat this one. What do they do? They go after it, right? And there's something about us that we're, we're rebellious. We want what we want. Wet paint, do not touch. You know what I'm talking about. Now, I will say that the scripture is clear that we should be growing more and more into the image of Christ. Those things should have less and less of a hold of us. But there are still there. There's a dimension of that sinful nature that's still there. And it's, it's there in us, and it's also there in that person that you're married to. But there's also a higher reality, and that's that for us as Christians, our sins have been removed. See, when, when you sin, according to the Bible, it's not, not really you. You've heard me say this before, Romans 7.20. No, if, you, I do not, if I do what I do not want, it's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. See, you're free. Your sins are gone. Yes, there's a dimension of the sin nature that lives in you, but God sees you as holy and righteous. And here's the deal. He also sees your spouse as holy and righteous. Some of you are going, wait a minute. Are you sure? Yeah, I am. But only because of what Christ did. So what might happen, do you suppose... If you saw your spouse the same way that Christ sees you, holy and righteous. Practically speaking, what if you acted like God? What if instead of turning your back when your spouse does something that irks you, what if you pursue them all the more? What if you graciously and consistently extended love to them? What if if you took your covenant vows seriously for better or for worse? Do you think that might impact their heart as well as yours? Think about the scripture from Psalm 130. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness. What if you and I took a page from that playbook? What if instead of, oh yeah, I remember when you did this or or when you did that, what if we simply forgave? What if we wiped the slate clean? What what, what if we acted like it never happened? Don't mark iniquities. Don't keep track of the sins. Don't make a mental note of the, the harsh words. Forgive. After all, Ephesians 4.32 says, Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. That's the godly way to walk in love. That's the biblical way for marriages to work. Next week, I think we're going to be talking about some some practical things about uh, marriage for husbands and wives. But for right now, I want us to recognize first that there's a God who's pursuing you. 
You know the verse in Psalm 23, surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. The, the message translation, I like, it says it this way. Your beauty and love chases after me every day of my life. His love is chasing you. Just like Hosea did with his wife. He loves you more than you know. And, and it's because of that love, because God is pursuing you, his bride, you and me with a heart that is full of love. It's because of that that we can pursue our spouse the same way. So husbands and wives, this week, I want to challenge and encourage you. What would happen if you did that? What if you were to pursue your spouse in the same way that your heavenly bridegroom pursues you? What if you actually loved for better or for worse? What if you forgave immediately and completely, just like Christ does with us? What if when when your spouse is seemingly cold-hearted and sinful, what if you were to choose to love them anyway? See, I think marriages could flourish in ways that we never even imagined if we did that. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the truth of your word. Thank you that you willingly pursue us, that you run after us, that you come after us over and over and over again. God, how good and how gracious you are. And Lord, we ask that as you have shown us from your word today, that goodness, that, that, that constant and consistent love in pursuit of us, Lord, that, that we would have that same attitude toward others and especially toward our spouse. Lord, for those of us that are married, we ask that, that you would make that more and more of a reality in our lives, that we would have the, the same attitude that, that you have that we would be willing to love unconditionally and extend that mercy and forgiveness again and again and again. God, may it be so. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.